This is the sermon for the third Sunday in Advent. The title is The Work Continues, and my theme today, my main point, is that cultures do not evolve morally. They do not evolve. Rather, they are the result of the organic growth that God gives them in holiness and righteousness and right worship, or they reflect their deep-seated rebellion against God and his word. Today's sermon, today's message is also going to be about what happens when you lose your confidence, what happens when you lose your confidence and even your faith. And we can look at the character of John the Baptist for an examination of what to do. Today's gospel reading is about John the Baptist. But I want to skip ahead in John's story a little bit and talk about when he had been arrested and thrown in prison. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, John's already in prison, and he asks a question. He says, now when John, Matthew says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, I want to compare that to the earlier confidence that John showed, which we read about in today's gospel, where John is absolutely sure that Jesus is the Christ. Today's gospel, the priests and the Levites are sent from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? To which John boldly replies, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, we also have a reading today from Isaiah, and in the, wor- in the words from Isaiah, we read about Isaiah's good news, and good news, of course, is the even uh, the um, the the English translation of the Greek word evangelion, which means, uh, from which we get the word evangelical, which means gospel or good news. And so today's reading from Isaiah proclaims good news to the brokenhearted, to captives, and to those who mourn. Now, Isaiah's words were originally addressed to the exiles who returned from captivity in Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Ezra, the scribe and priest, and later Nehemiah, the, the governor of Persia, ruled Persian ruled Judea, were the first to fulfill the prophetic words of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 4, which we read today. And I'll, I'll read them to you again. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. However, the appearance of John the Baptist, the success of his ministry, and even the attention he gets from the Jerusalem establishment tell us that the prophecy, this prophecy, has only been partially fulfilled. So Ezra and Nehemiah started to fulfill it 500 years or so before Christ was born, and now John the Baptist, we encounter John the Baptist, and he's still preaching. Clearly, the complete fulfillment of the prophecy has not been fulfilled. He's still preaching repentance. Men are still sinners. This is especially true of the last verse we read today in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 11, which extends the prophecy well beyond the 5th century to the time of John the Baptist and to the time of the church, to the times we are living in today. I'll read that verse to you too. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 11, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now, I don't think we could say those words have been fully fulfilled. Certainly couldn't have said them in John's time, uh, and we can't say them today. Isaiah describes righteousness and praise. Look at the words he uses to describe righteousness and praise. He, he He compares them to the earth and to a garden. He's using natural terms to describe righteousness and praise. Now, righteousness here, I think we need to think of it as right living. 
Um, and, and praise we need to think of as right worship. It's what we do in, in church. And it's why going to church is different than going anywhere else, right? You, you, you can't do this in another context, in another religious setting. Uh, you, know, you can't be spiritual and religious, and, and not religious, I should say, because, um, because praise implies here right worship, and worship is something we do in community, uh, and it's really only something the church is able to do. Only the church can worship God. Uh, the other thing about Isaiah's verse here is that he's not just speaking to, to ethnic Israel anymore. He's, his, his, Isaiah is a universalist in the best sense of that word. Isaiah uh, is speaking not just to Israel, but to the whole world. His prophecy about right living and right worship extends to the whole world. So there are two things that I've pointed out here. First, that right living and right worship, righteousness and praise are not the product of chance. Um, I need to underscore that. Cultures do not evolve morally. God brings about their perfection according to his word. And he does this in what appears to be a very easy, natural process. Just as the earth and the garden yield their fruit, God, through his mysterious workings of providence, like the leaven, which Jesus compares the kingdom of God to, he brings about right living and right worship the world over. Second, These cultures do not evolve morally because the principles they praise, which is to say the things they worship, offer no guidance and only lead to God's judgment. Now, it's a fact of God's judgment that he lets the sin itself be the punishment. I'll say that again. God's judgment is such that God lets the sin itself be the punishment. Now, we often see Jesus healing the blind, the deaf, and the lame. And these are not just meant to be taken as physical healings alone, although they are that, but spiritual cures as well. Now, Psalm uh, 115 describes this physical, spiritual condition uh, that needs healing. He, he, the psalmist describes this in verses 5 through 7. He, he says, They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Now, in the psalm, they refers to the idols and the people that the people have made and wor- made and worship. Uh, but the judgment comes in verse 8. They, meaning the people that make them, meaning the idols, are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. So, in other words, what the psalmist is saying here is those who make idols become like them. They become deaf because idols can't hear, dumb because idols can't speak, blind because idols are just simply made of wood or stone and they can't see, and crippled because idols need people to carry them around on litters and in fancy processions with a lot of vestments and smoke and incense and bells. Sorry, I think I might be describing um, our fellow co-religionists in other denominations. Anyway, according to Isaiah, right living and right worship happen almost naturally wherever God is acknowledged for who he is. Also, according to Isaiah, judgment for sin occurs wherever idols replace God. Isaiah says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Isaiah says that, uh, not in the reading we read today, um, but in uh, chapter 44, verse 18. So we see that God lets the punishment, he lets sin be its own punishment. Now, back to the story with John the Baptist in today's gospel. The priests and the Levites ask John three specific questions. They ask, who are you? They ask, are you Elijah? And they ask, are you the prophet? John can answer with confidence because he actually knows the answer. He knows that he is not Christ. He knows he is not Elijah. And he knows he is not the prophet. Now, by the way, the prophet here referred to as a reference to something Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 
verse 15. Uh, there Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the, the people of God have always waited expectantly for that prophecy in Deuteronomy to be fulfilled, and Jesus comes to fulfill it. So this is another way that John is underscoring, emphasizing that he is not the Messiah. John knows that he is a servant of Christ who is already standing in the crowd, that Jesus is literally already there. But they don't know who they don't know him. They don't know who he is. He hasn't yet manifested himself. We have a whole season of Epiphany coming up after Christmas, dedicated to the manifestation of Jesus, not just to this crowd of of Jewish um, residents of Judea, but to the whole world, the Gentiles as well, in, in fulfillment of that uh, universal vision of Isaiah's prophecy. John knows he is the servant of this Christ because he says he is not worthy even to untie his shoes. Now, how many of us can answer with confidence, with John's confidence, I should say, who are you? How many of us can answer that question with confidence? Who are you? Can you say that you are the servant of Jesus Christ? Because that might take some humility. It's flattering, after all, to be thought of highly, even to be asked, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Our ears itch to be flattered, don't they? Are you? Are you? Are you? Fill in the blank. What popular idol would you like to be confused with? What doppelganger? There's a meme going around years ago about celebrity doppelganger. Which, which celebrity do you look like? To which we are eager to, eager to say, if only to ourselves, out of false modesty, why, yes, I am, I am, I am. And of course, that's how the idols get made. When Moses asks God for his name, God replies, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When John is in prison, he seems to lose confidence that Jesus is the Christ. John sends his own disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, John's doubt here, his momentary loss of conviction, is much different than our idol-making. Idolatry is rooted in the sin of unbelief. It's a very different thing. Unbelief and doubt are not the same thing. I hear a lot of people dress up doubt, sorry, dress up their unbelief as, as pious doubt. It's, it's, they're very different things. One is the failing of our flesh, which is to say doubt, though we have faith. Unbelief is, is, a sinful, is rooted in a sinful re- rebellion and rejection of who God is. It's also the heretical question that the serpent asks Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, John's doubt here is understandable. He was arrested and he will be put to death on a jealous wife's whim. Remember that story? The, the Herod's wife is upset because John called her out in her sexual sin. Uh, she's divorced. She divorced her husband after falling in love with her husband's brother, who, who also happened to be King Herod. And incidentally, she was the niece of both of these men. She's sitting there saying, I am, to herself. She's saying, I am, I am, I am. She's saying, I am Herodias. She is saying, I am the king's wife. She's saying, I am in love. Whatever I do, therefore, is justified. I am, I am, I am. See how we make our idols? We say, I am, I am, I am. Only God, only God, only a God can say, I am. Only he can say it without any dependence or contingency, uh, wholly on his own. See, we all need something. We all are dependent on God for our sustenance and survival, for our very being. But, only, but God can stand alone and say, I am. John's doubt is born of fear in the dungeon. 
like John, true, true Christians face these terrors too. It's natural for us to want to come to want to uh, want some assurance that the man we call Lord is in fact the Christ and not just another fraud. Jesus sends his answer back to John by way of John's disciples, saying, "Go and tell John what you hear and see." In other words, you're you are eyewitnesses to me. You've seen what I'm doing. Go tell him that the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And remember, all of these things also, these are physical maladies, but they also are spiritual components as well. They're the result of idolatry. And then Jesus finishes by saying, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And I emphasize that last sentence, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The reason is not only, the reason is that not only is Jesus confirming that he is the Messiah through these miracles that he lists, he's also smashing the idols at the same time, the idols behind those infirmities. Remember, sin is its own punishment. When Jesus heals blindness, he must also destroy the sinful works that cause blindness. All of those I am's, all of those idols, Jesus that blind us, Jesus is destroying them in the process of healing our blindness. And we can say, well, that's all well and good when it happens to someone else. But when Jesus turns to heal me and destroy my cherished works, I might be offended. I really put a lot of stock in all the stuff I do, right? I might be offended. Like you, I think we all, I do at least, want to desperately hang on to all of our I ams. I am, I am, I am. The idol-making refrain of our hearts. After John's disciples leave, Jesus addresses his own followers and says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, John denied he was Elijah, right? So, okay, you know, you, you want to be a naysayer, you can say, here's the Bible contradicting itself, right? The Bible's not true. Bible, Bible makes mistakes. The Bible, Bible you know, different authors, different people who didn't agree. And a lot of people who will say that. But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's affirming that John is, in fact, the second coming of Elijah. He's lifting John up in his humility and raising him to a place of high rank and esteem. And this is hope for all of us who have returned to build up the ancient ruins and raise up the former devastations. The hope is this, the work, the work we do may not seem effective, and it may rank us among the least in the kingdom, yet if we know who we are and whose we are, if we know we belong to Christ, then we will come to know that we are greater than we can possibly imagine, which is what happened to John here. It's not a contradiction in the text. John didn't think he was anybody. John knew he was unworthy to untie the shoes of, of, of his Lord and to master Jesus Christ. And, and in that humility, Jesus lifts him up and raises him up. Now, remember I said that the, the righteousness, right living and praise, right worship, they're, they're almost natural processes. Now, they're not natural. They're supernatural. God's at the author of as he is with everything, but these are direct, you know, direct uh, will of God involved here. But, they, but the metaphor Isaiah uses is that it's like a natural process. Holiness and, and, and praise come about just as the earth and the garden give, give forth their fruit. And here it is. Here we see that fruit being born. John, in his humility, follows the call placed on his heart. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming of the, of the one, of the, of the prophet. He's thrown in jail. He's arrested. He's persecuted. He dies. He's beheaded. And yet, he's raised up, as we all will be, for in what for God is an entirely normal and natural process. Holiness and righteousness 
are the fruit of God's will and our humility. The work we do is the repair of the ruined cities. And we are, even now, working to undo the devastation of many generations, generations that go all the way back to Adam and Eve. I'm thinking here, especially of the church, but also of our nation and society. Boy, do we need some work here. Do we not need to undo some of the devastation of many generations, particularly the recent generations, which have so left their mark on our culture and not in a good way? Once again, we are about to turn the page on the calendar and begin a new year. Many, many predict that 2024 will be a difficult year. And so the message of the third Sunday in Advent here in late 2023 is that the work of God continues. It continues with or without us. That work will continue because God purposes, accomplishes what he sets out to do. And so his work will continue until all he has willed to come to pass comes to pass. And I want to say to you and to me, let us make sure that God can use us in that work. Amen. Now, the questions for reflection and discussion. Why did John the Baptist lose confidence that Jesus was the Christ? And the answer, well, he was in jail. He was being persecuted. He was in jail for his preaching. Question number two, to whom did Isaiah originally address his good news? And the answer is to the captives who returned from Babylon. Uh, They were returning to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Question number three, Isaiah describes righteousness and praise in what kind of terms? He describes them in natural terms. He describes them as like a garden and unlike the earth. Question number four, righteousness means what? Righteousness means holy living. Question number five, praise means what? Praise means right worship. Question number six, explain how God lets sin be the punishment. And the answer is that the sinner takes on the characteristics of his sin. So if you worship an idol that can't see, that is blind in its nature and composition, you too, the idolater himself, will become blind. Question number seven, what three questions do the priests and Levites ask John? And the answer is, who are you? Number one. Number two, are you Elijah? Number three, are you the prophet? Question number eight, explain how these questions might flatter a man less humble than John. Well, I think it would flatter all of us um, to be taken for somebody important. And that's the answer to number eight. Number nine, question number nine, who alone can truly say I am without any reference or dependency on another? And the answer is God. Um, Question number 10, explain how John's momentary doubt is different than unbelief. Unbelief is rooted in idolatry. Um, You put your faith in something that you cannot put your faith in, that has no faith, that is not worthy of uh, putting your faith in it, and you won't have any faith. Uh, uh, Unbelief is rooted in in idolatry. Uh, It's rooted in the things that we prefer to tell ourselves are true rather than what God says is true in his holy word with the Bible, right? Plain and simple, the Bible is true. Um, question number 11, when Jesus heals blindness, he must also destroy the sinful blank that cause blindness. What, what, are, what are the things that cause blindness? The sinful what? The answer is works. When Jesus heals blindness, he must also destroy the sinful works that cause blindness. If we make idols, that's a work. Uh, so God will not only destroy the, the, the work of our hands, the work of our idol making, he will destroy, um, he will destroy the consequences of it, of it, um, of them himself. He'll, he'll, uh, uh, which is to say, our, our, our the heart, our idol-making heart. He will, he will, re- he will, he will not so much destroy that, but transform it and renew it. Uh, maybe it is destroyed. Maybe he rips out our old hearts and puts in a new one. That's you know, that's what it means to be born again. Uh, whether it's uh, 
continuation, a transformation of the old heart or a complete new heart. I, I leave that for another discussion. Question number 12, explain the hope of those who work in God's kingdom. What, what hope do we have, we workers in the kingdom? And the hope that we have is that God allows our small, small efforts to be the causes of great things to come. And sometimes we see those uh, in, in this lifetime. We see glimpses of that, uh, even full fruition. Um, sometimes we see that, but, uh, but the promise is that we are, we are sowing seeds now that will grow into mighty oaks uh, in eternity in the kingdom of God. Um, Two things here for parents and godparents: you should, you are responsible to apply God's word to your children's lives. And, and here's here's some help. You're, you're, ask your children to draw a picture of something they heard in today's sermon and explain it to you. And older children could do the following: count count how many times the word idol or idolatry is mentioned. I, I think I said that a lot. I'm not even sure. Uh, and then uh, discuss with your parents the significance of work. Children, discuss with your parents what it means to work. Why do we work? What's what, what's the purpose of it? Well, that's the sermon for uh, the third Sunday of Advent, and I wish you all a blessed remainder of this holy season. Next Sunday is the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's also Christmas Eve day, Um, and uh, so I wish you a Merry Christmas as well, but I'll be with you again next week, God willing.